This episode of Dear Hank and John is brought to you by Blue Land. Did you know that uh, about 5 billion, billion? That's a de- I checked that because that's a lot. Plastic hand soap and cleaning bottles are thrown away every year. And if that's not bad enough, most cleaning formulas are 90% water, which is heavy. We're shipping around all this water using fuel when we don't have to. Every year, Americans throw away 25% more trash from Thanksgiving to New Year. This year, maybe turn the New Year's resolution into action that makes a difference by switching to Blue Land. Blue Land is on a mission to eliminate single-use plastic by reinventing cleaning essentials to be better for you and the planet with the same powerful clean you're used to. It's a simple idea. They have refillable cleaning products. They have a nice design. I have them in my home. It looks nice on your counter. You fill the reusable bottles with water, drop in the Blue Land tablets, wait for them to dissolve, and you never have to grab bulky, heavy cleaning supplies on your grocery run ever again. And refills, because they're small and you don't have to ship a bunch of water across the country, starts at just $2.25. You can even set up a subscription or buy in bulk for additional savings. From cleaning sprays to hand soap, toilet bowl cleaner, and laundry tablets, Laundry tablets, everybody, you know what I mean. All Blue Land products are made with clean ingredients that you can feel good about. Blue Land is trusted in over a million homes, including, yeah, mine. Blue Land has a special offer for listeners right now. You can get 15% off your first order by going to blueland.com slash dearhank. You won't want to miss it. Blueland.com slash dearhank for 15% off. Again, blueland.com slash dearhank to get 15% off. Welcome to Dear Hank and John. Or as I prefer to think of it, Dear John and Hank. It's a weekly podcast where I, Hank Green, and my brother John answer your questions and give you dubious advice and bring you all of the week's news from both Mars and AFC Wimbledon. But first, John, do you have a poem for us? Uh, I do have a poem this morning, but I thought we could start by just talking about how we're doing. How are you? Oh, I'm okay. My refrigerator still isn't running, so th- I, I want to make a video on how to deal with your refrigerator stopping working because apparently it is not an easy problem to fix. Well, uh, here's a broad observation, Hank, and I hope that you don't take this too personally, but um, for 249,850 uh, of the 250,000 years that humans have been on this earth, they haven't had refrigerators, and, and we've done just fine as a species, so maybe you need to suck it up. <laughs> ah, fine. Do you want to tell me Do you want to tell me how you're doing? I'm doing great. Uh, things are good here. My uh, five-year-old son has just started school, and it's so cute with the backpack and, uh, and his little school uniform and everything. It's just adorable. I Yes, I couldn't be happier. Uh, it's beautiful summer here in uh, Indianapolis. Uh, the White River is at its uh, very, very finest. Uh, life is good. Uh, and here is a poem by Emily Dickinson. Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Success in circuit lies. Too bright for our infirm delight. The truth's superb surprise. As lightning to the children eased with explanation kind. The truth must dazzle gradually, or every man be blind. I love this poem, but I also don't know what it means. Um, and I've loved it for a long time, and, and I've felt uh, torn in two directions about it for the, for the longest time, because um, 
one of the things that's interesting about Dickinson's poetry is the sort of waxing and waning relationship that she has with religious faith and um, with the idea of the soul. And I feel in this poem, uh, there is both the waxing and the waning. Um, and I can handle uh, one poem waxing and another waning, but I'm not sure that I can handle waxing and waning within the same poem. But I love that line, tell all the truth, but tell it slant. I think it is a, a really, really good uh, piece of advice when it comes to uh, telling stories and also when it comes to writing. So that's uh, that's today's poem. Mm. I very rarely know what to think about poems, John. <laughs> Emily Dickinson in particular is something that, that, was, uh, that was forced upon me in high school, and I was like, this is clearly just somebody who put a bunch of words down in, in an order that uh, to them and to us is completely arbitrary. And uh, I need... Uh, I need you to give to teach me how to feel things about these words that are clearly uh, meant to say something, but are so afraid of actually saying it. Well, the problem with saying things directly—I mean, that's a you know—that's a reasonable criticism of of. Uh many poems and many uh, works of literature. But the problem with saying something directly is that you uh, you end up saying it less effectively, right? Like, um, uh, let me submit that um, if you just say there is a certain tension between innocence and experience in adolescence that leads to a simultaneous, like, thrill of the new and feeling of loss about um, one's childhood that one can never get back, like that isn't, uh, that doesn't hit you in the middle. You can't identify with that. It doesn't feel as transformative as like reading uh, about Holden Caulfield experiencing those emotions. So I think that there is uh, something about language that can be like transformative and uh, helpful in a way that just quote unquote saying something uh, isn't. But uh, yeah, so I mean, that's 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 what Emily Dickinson is saying, I think, when she says, tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Uh, you know, we can't if, if we just say the thing directly, a lot of times uh, it isn't as impactful. It isn't as uh, as moving and um, and important to us. Uh, should we move on to questions or do you want to continue? Uh, I, to well, I want to I want to talk about poetry. Is that OK? OK. OK. Yeah, absolutely. Just for a little bit. I, I, I will. I will also submit that uh you know like there there's a, a both a problem and a solution in the way that I feel like poetry operates. Uh the 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 solution is that it's giving us an opportunity to to think it's it's kind of a it's a prompt uh wherein like it's not saying here's the thing to think it's saying here is something that will make you think and i appreciate that i appreciate i love things that make me think and i think you know by not being all upfront and being you know 100% this is the thing that i'm trying to say it gives you the opportunity to fill it in uh the problem that that solution also causes is that it doesn't truly function unless uh it, it it sort of relies on the reader and the writer to have come from a similar place uh in in that you know these well not necessarily i, I think i think that 
it relies on them having come from a similar place if the reader is going to get what the writer intended for them to get. Well, yes and no. I mean, look, a reader and a writer have to work in collaboration um, and a reader has to do their job just as the writer has to do their job. But like, let me give you uh, the example of uh, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, the great American novel written by uh, Mark Twain. Um you know, like there is a there is a right way and a wrong way to read that novel. It's it's not just it doesn't just exist to make you think. It exists to make you uh, understand some of the reasons that um, uh, that slavery is so unjust and that a sort of like a demented moral conscience across a social order um, can lead to people believing that virtue is sin and sin is virtue. Like um, that's that's not trying to like make you think it's trying to make an argument that um that will you know will change your belief system or um or affirm your understanding of humanity or challenge it um and i think like that uh, that the the idea that like you know all readings of a story or a poem are equally valuable or there are no wrong answers in literature like there are in science like i just dismiss that completely i think that um you know, I, I think that authorial intent isn't particularly important, but meaning is. Uh, and, and there are better and worse readings of a text. And it's just like science in the sense that our responsibility um, as as readers is to try uh, to try to get to whatever truth might be inside um, a work of art. Yeah, I, I, I feel you. Yeah. In, in, in the case of a novel, I would understand it much more of like the the you know, the amount of information there allows for a more solid interpretation. But I think the economy of words in poetry and also the, you know, the intent of it being a little bit, uh, you know, like le- leaving room there for the for the reader to be a part of the work. Uh, it, in a way, it, I feel like without, uh, without, you know, participating participation in Emily Dickinson's culture, I would have a very difficult time understanding uh, what Emily Dickinson's work meant. No, I mean, it's right there in the text, like, uh, you know, as lightning to the children eased with explanation kind, like, uh, you know, we don't tell uh, young children like, you know, lightning is this uh, terrifying bolt of electricity from the sky that will kill you where like, Oh, listen to the, you know, look at the beautiful lightning and then hear the big thunder, you know, um, and, and her argument here is right in the last two, two, two uh, lines of the poem. The truth must dazzle gradually or every man be blind. Like if somehow, you know, the secrets of the universe and, and of God and the soul were revealed to us um, all at once that like this, um, that truth would be blinding. Um, now, I don't agree with the argument of the poem necessarily, but like, I think there is a reading of it. Like, I don't think that it's like that hard. I don't think it's like a matter of like, you know, needing to understand, you know, what kind of house Emily Dickinson grew up in or like what color clothing she wore. Um, I think it's, it was usually white for the record, (laughs) but I think, um, uh, you know, I think like the, 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 the poem can stand on its own. Uh, now, not all poems can stand on their own, but I think that one can. Can we get to the questions? I think that's probably a good idea. All right. This question is from Ellie. Um, 
She writes, Dear John and Hank, my name is Ellie, and I've been a nerdfighter for over two years. My question to you is, do you think there is a possibility of there being different universes? Do you believe in the multiverse theory? Um, now, I am not a scientist, Ellie, so I'm going to answer this question first, and then I'm going to let Hank, uh, who actually <laughs> has information related to the subject, answer it. I totally believe in the multiverse theory. I believe that there is a universe <laughs> in which every possible thing that could have happened happens where like a butterfly flapped its wings this way in one universe and that way in another universe and that in and of itself made a different universe and there is this like nearly well I don't know if you can really say nearly infinite because infinity isn't a big number uh but there's this like countless you know gajillions of universes out there um and in each of them interestingly Donald Trump does not become president this is a conversation John and I have previously had that that if there is a possibility that uh, that all all things could happen, even even in that that infinite sphere, in none of them does Donald Trump win the Republican nomination for president. Actually, I think there's two of them, and and yet we continue talking about it. No, I think there's two of them out of the like fourteen. Uh, quadrillion possibilities. I think there are two in which he gets the nomination, but in neither of those two does he become president. <laughs> um, well, and in one of the two where he gets the nomination, my understanding is that there is an asteroid that hits the Earth um, that results in there only being 17 Americans left. <laughs> <laughs> but he still loses to Samuel... Uh, who was a, uh, a manager uh, at, a, at a meat processing plant, uh, but wins, you know, the majority of the vote. He actually wins 16 to 1 in the end. <laughs> uh, um, so, Ellie, uh, from, to talk about this in a, a more scientific way, uh, it's the, there's... Uh, this idea of believing in a scientific theory is sort of imagining the way that science works incorrectly. Um, so I think that sometimes we want there to be a world that we can, you know, just like kind of decide uh, how we want to see the world. And and I think that we should and can do that when it comes to uh, to personal relationships and to culture. But when it comes to the multiverse and the universe, we don't really get to decide uh, what we believe in. Uh, there is a way that it is, and we don't know. So we don't know whether there's a multiverse or not. We have people who have proposed it because uh, there is complicated math that I do not and do not want to understand. Uh, and they, uh, get, they, have, they have that argument, and, and they will continue to have those arguments for probably a very long time until until some day in which they can say with relative certainty that one or the other thing is true and then we will continue on our path to learning more about how uh, how the universe functions um, but but is it possible Hank that there is this like nearly infinite set of universes and that everything that happens in the universe creates a new one yeah. Yeah. Wow. I mean, when you start talking cosmologically, a lot of things are possible, first of all. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely a thing that, that has been proposed and, uh, and has been worked on and, 
and in the way that cosmologists and physicists deal with these things, uh, it has been it has been scrutinized. Um, but it is a very difficult thing to scrutinize because uh, at the point where we are talking about the universe in terms of equations, uh, not in terms of what we observe, it is a weird, weird thing uh, when, when it all boils down to math. Wow. This question is from Maggie, who asks, Dear Hank and John, if you could have any three languages instantly downloaded into your brain, which would they be and why? Well, from my perspective, it'd be very helpful to have English, um, all of English immediately. <laughs> there are so many English words that I need when I'm writing that I find it difficult to access or remember or like I'm trying to use my brain as a thesaurus and it isn't working. So I would start with English. Uh, second would be Spanish. Um, uh, a lot of Spanish speakers uh, in my life, and I think it would be fun to be able to speak Spanish. Also, uh, I really like this uh, this NPR show my friend Daniel Aracon makes called uh, Radio Ambulante, but I can't listen to it, the, the, the Spanish parts, because I don't speak Spanish. And then the third would be Mandarin, because I... Um, I believe that, you know, obviously that would be very useful if we could make Crash Course World History videos in Mandarin, Spanish, and English instead of just English. So those would be my three. Hank, yeah, I, I think I'd probably just pick the three most commonly spoken languages uh, that weren't English. I, I would not just try and get more English because I feel like I'm pretty good there. Uh, but yeah, China, uh, Mandarin, Hindi, and Spanish, I believe, are the three most spoken languages. Uh, uh, English is in the top, the top four, four as well. So I, I, I think. You want to know the top five spoken languages, Hank? Am I wrong? Mandarin, Spanish, English, Hindi, and do you have a guess? Uh, uh, no, I have no idea. It's actually Minion. What? Minion. Like the, like the, little, ye- the little yellow thing? Yeah, Minion is fifth. Uh. It's actually Arabic. That was more of a joke for my son than a joke for you, but I enjoyed it greatly. <laughs> You know what the weird the weird thing about minions? Have you noticed this? That like minions are loved by children and women over sixty five. Mm, I'm not sure that minions are loved by women over sixty five. I don't think there's anyone over the age of nine who really loves a minion right now. No, no, it's crazy. It's I I was just at a wedding shower at a uh, at this. So my friend has uh, a friend who is in her sixties. And her house is covered in minions. Covered. And she, she has amazing... She's an artist. She's, a, she's an amazing watercolorist. And she does really beautiful textile art. And she is really intelligent, wonderful woman. And she's obsessed with minions. And when you look... Uh, when, when the Minions movie was first announced, there was... Uh, you know, the trailer got shared on Facebook. And it was just all, all comments from people in their 60s being like, well, I know this is for kids, but I'll tell you what, they sure, I can't wait. They love it. They, I, it's so strange. We should talk to mom about it and be like, mom, are you into minions? I don't think she is, but maybe she would be. I don't know. It's a, it's weird. It's a thing. I I really think respectfully that you found one person who happens to like minions and happens to be a woman over 60 and you made a very broad conclusion. (laughs) 
Let's take another question, Hank. This one's from River. Dear John and Hank, I've watched the World Cup for a long time. Now I want to start following the game full time, but I don't know where to start because it's very confusing. I chose Chelsea initially because I like the name, but well, I was put off from them soon after, presumably because they were built from the blood of actual Russian peasants. Anyway, any tips for the beginner soccer follower? How do you choose your team? Well, River, it's not easy, but you choose AFC Wimbledon. And then you realize that you can't watch AFC Wimbledon week in and week out because they play in the fourth tier of English football. Uh, So you choose the other great club in England, Liverpool Football Club. It's that easy, River. Done and dusted. There's also a question for you, Hank. Will you be in season two of that thing you're doing with Will Wheaton? I will be. And so will Ankia and Jeremy. Uh, If you're you're aware of what we're talking about, I did a show uh, called... Titan's Grave, The Ashes of Valkana, with Will Wheaton and some friends uh, in which we play uh, the highest production value uh, session of uh, a tabletop RPG that you've ever seen. So it's like Dungeons and Dragons, if you've heard of that, but it's not Dungeons and Dragons, uh, where we we take on the role of characters and, and fight evil. It's real fun and real good and real funny and I just uh, went to the subreddit reddit.com slash r slash forwards from grandma and it is full of minions (laughs) sorry John are you serious yes but like wait it's it's reddit slash r slash what forwards from grandma I'm going to look because I don't believe... Wow, that's a lot of minions. (laughs) Goodness gracious. Let's move on to another question. This one's from Brianna who writes, Dear John and Hank, Salutations, my name is Brianna and I fell out of a tree today. I was climbing a tree, (laughs) then I slipped and was in a position where I could either fall on my knees or jump and land on my feet. I chose the latter, but I was barefoot because I find shoes rather cumbersome. And so I landed on the sidewalk and then stumbled a few steps and curled into a panting heap for a few minutes. Some people drove by and looked concerned, so I decided I had to get up so that no one called an ambulance because I was fine, just shaken. Once I got up, it felt like my body no longer trusted my mind's decisions, so I couldn't run, but I also couldn't stop moving? Now I'm realizing that this story is too long. My question is, what tree climbing advice can you give me? Because I rather like climbing trees. This is my favorite question we've ever got. That's a really good question, Brianna. Um, I, I have to say I'm not a, I'm not a super expert. It sounds like you may know a, a good deal more about tree climbing than I do. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little confused as to why Brianna reached out to uh, dear Hank and John, or as I prefer to think of it, dear John and Hank, for tree climbing advice when she seems to be the world's leading tree climber. Yeah. I guess the first thing I'd say, Brianna, is... Uh, when I set out to climb a tree, um, even though I do find shoes rather cumbersome at times, I put them on. Um, so that's my number one piece of advice. Wear some shoes. Yeah. Your ancestors were barefoot for so long, and they worked so hard to make shoes possible for you. Over generations and generations, they, they toiled so that you could have shoes when you climb trees, whereas they could not. Um, so wear shoes. That's actually my main piece of advice. Other than that, it seems to me that you're an expert tree climber. Yeah, I mean, I'm very glad that you didn't fall on your knees because that would have been very bad. Uh, knees are not designed for being fallen on. Feet are. And uh, yeah. Hank, how tall do you suppose this tree was 
where she was able to land and be unhurt. I feel like if I fell from a tree that was three or four feet above the ground, I would definitely break a leg. You could fall from higher than that, it turns out, and be all right. Mm, maybe you can. I'm old. You get you start getting into trouble once you get up over 10, 10 feet or so, uh, where, you're, where you're pretty guaranteed to uh, have to have a broken bone or two. Hank, sometimes you say things and you say them very authoritatively in the way that you always say things. And um, I can't decide if you actually know all these things or if you just have a gift for having a voice that sounds like you know things. Like, is 10 feet actually like the distance at which injuries become far more likely? Or are you just a confident liar? Okay, we have, we have got another question. This one is from Reed, who asks, Dear Hank and John, do fish sleep? If they do sleep... What do you think fish dream about? Any ideas, John? Hank, I know that there's nothing more boring than other people's dreams, but can I tell you about my dream anyway? Uh. I dreamt last night that uh, I was imprisoned with Sarah, my, my, my beautiful wife. We were both imprisoned, and we were trying to uh, find a way for one of us to escape because our children were on the loose. They were having to take care of each other. And I love my five-year-old son very much, and he's an incredibly good big brother, but he is unqualified to take care of Alice. Oh, it made me very anxious. Anyway, I think when fish uh, sleep, they, they, they have anxiety dreams, just like we do. <laughs> Presumably they dream of sharks and of being eaten. Uh, they dream of uh, the world without them, which will indeed be the world soon enough. Oh, fish will be okay. There's a lot of ocean. Well, not all of them will be okay, but I think I think most of the fish will be all right. Um, Hank. Yes? Hank. What? Hank. What? None of them will be okay. None of the fish will be okay. They are all going to die. Every fish, every moment it's swimming, knows that oblivion is coming. Right. Each individual fish will die. Yes. And then eventually all of the fish will die and there will be no life on Earth. All right. Let's, can we get back to the original question, which is about whether or not fish sleep? Do they? Uh, not really. They, fish do not have eye, uh, eyelids. So uh, they they don't they can't close their eyes like like we would when sleeping. They also don't uh, do the thing that we do when we sleep, which is that we like power down parts of our brains and like our brain enters into a new a new way of operating. Uh, their brains aren't really that comp like they're not super complicated fish brains. Um, so they don't really do that. They do some fish like rest. They have resting periods, but it doesn't seem to be that it is the it is. It's more of a physical rest than it is a mental uh, a, a alteration in the mental state the way that sleep is for us. So fish don't really sleep no, and they don't and and they and because of that they don't dream. Wow, which is interesting. So fish don't dream about sharks. Yeah, they don't dream. Yeah, they don't. They don't have anxiety dreams. What a lovely, what a lovely thing. Do you think fish feel anxious though? Because I feel like they do. Like when I uh, <laughs> when I see fish, I always feel like they're super anxious. <laughs> Probably, I, I imagine that uh, that all prey animals uh, have some kind of anxiety based instinct. Let me ask a follow up question, Hank. Would you consider humans to be a uh, prey animal? No. <laughs> then why do I have so much anxiety? Uh, well, we, uh, yeah, I, I think that we certainly are related to prey animals. Uh, we're closely related to prey animals. 
and uh, and also I I think that there are a lot you know I guess you don't have to be a prey animal to experience anxiety. There are lots of things to be anxious about that aren't death um, and, and and you know being consumed. So I think that even if it's you know you're wait wait whoa 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 back up back up back up. There are other things to be anxious about. I've been devoting so much time to being anxious about death that I didn't even know. About. What are these other things that I need to be worrying about? Please uh, list them immediately. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, social standing, uh, 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 mates is one of the primary things that uh, uh, humans and other animals are anxious about. Uh, so, you know, finding and securing uh, someone to procreate with and also who will love you for being you. Oh, I quite like my mate and I'm reasonably happy with my social standing. So that's a big relief. So can I just focus on death? Is that okay? Yeah, that's fine. I mean, that's that's actually like a sign that you're doing pretty good. If you're if you know you're focused on on the uh, you know the sort of most inevitable and and unavoidable uh, problem that we all face, that's good. That's fine. You know that means that you're you've ha- you've handled the more uh, the more handleable ones. Good job. Today's episode of Dear Hank and John is brought to you by the fear of death, the best fear according to Hank. <laughs> <laughs> Today's episode of Dear Hank and John is brought to you by feet. Uh, you do not need to wear shoes on your feet because of how cumbersome they are if you are climbing trees. But maybe you should anyway, just for safety's sake. Today's episode of Dear Hank and John is brought to you by Grandma, who wants you to know that the Minions movie will be out on DVD soon. Today's episode of Dear Hank and John is brought to you by The Multiverse Theory completely unconcerned with whether or not you believe it. So we all know there are things in life that you have to compromise on, but there are two things that you shouldn't compromise on. One is name brand Dr. Pepper. The off-brand stuff just doesn't hit the same. And another is, of course, your health. So don't go back to that one doctor who uses your appointment to catch up on the latest headlines or their family group chat or the crossword puzzles just because they're available right now or take your slightly sketchy insurance. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. And you can search by location, availability, and insurance. So literally, no compromises here because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you know. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. You can filter specifically for ones who take your insurance, are located near you, and treat basically any condition you're searching for. And the typical wait time to see a doctor booked on ZocDoc is between 24 and 72 hours. So go to ZocDoc.com slash DearHank and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C.com slash DearHank. ZocDoc.com slash Dear Hank. All right, Hank, just a couple more quick questions before we get to the all-important news from AFC Wimbledon and I guess also the news from Mars. Uh, This question is from Klaus, who is from Germany and who asks, Dear John and Hank, how would you go about implementing the metric system in North America? Let me answer this uh, question first, Klaus, because I happen to know that Hank is is a delusional fan of the metric system because he believes in base 10 numbers instead of that sweet, sweet base 12 that we have here in the United States with our 12-inch feet and our uh, 12 feet per square meter. Um, Hank, is that correct? Ugh. Ugh. You just made me... That was like a super cringe. 
Um, so let me let me answer your question with a question, Klaus. Why on earth would we adopt the metric system here in the great United States of America when we already have an excellent system of measuring distances? There are 12 inches in a foot. There are three feet in a yard, and there are 5,280 feet in a mile. Could it be any simpler? The answer, my friend, is no. Well, uh, class asks a question, and uh, if you think we should actually answer it instead of being intentionally obtuse, <laughs> uh, we could do that. I wasn't being intentionally obtuse. I like that there are 5,280 feet in a mile. I find it so much easier to remember than the number of meters in a kilometer. Klaus, I, I will answer your question by just saying that it is indeed difficult. And I do not want to, to like be too angry at America for not having converted to the metric system. Because it is a big uh, and, and diverse country with a lot of needs and a lot of... Uh, a lot of systems that have been put in place and uh, would be very difficult to to change from uh, and it's a yeah it's a big country it goes all the way from one side of the continent to the other and we are also very powerful and there's a lot of efficiency in that power and we can say like well we would change except that Everybody else is completely willing to uh, to to deal with our weird uh, system of measurement so that they can do business with us. So why would we when it's going to cost us money and effort and annoyance to change? So there are good reasons why America doesn't change to the metric system, uh, but they are not. Uh, they are they are practical reasons that have to do with economics and with efficiency. They are not. Uh, they are not reasons that have to do with uh, just how how much more efficient the whole world would be if everybody used the same units. Uh, we are uh, not in a perfectly global society, and so we do not function as a global society. We function as a unit of the United States, and we say, well, it's about us being more efficient, uh, dealing, doing this, using the systems we've always used, not about the whole world being more efficient, trying to get all on one system of measurement, which would be obviously not the system of measurement we use, and even Americans recognize that we don't want the rest of the world to use our stupid system. But we... Uh, we have a hard time switching because uh, we have a lot invested into our current stupid system. So I really don't know, and I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, you know, in in the short term, in the next thirty years, I, I doubt we will we will shift to the metric system. I I would love for it to happen, and uh, science has largely shifted to the metric system. I uh, you know use metric uh, measures for weight and distance uh, myself. But uh, I don't for temperature because that just is very confusing to me. And uh, yeah, I, I, I think that I also think that it's perfectly reasonable and possible to be a two system country. And we kind of are, you know, we function in both. So that was a long answer to Klaus's very short question uh, in, in which I didn't actually answer the question because I don't think that we are going to do it. I think we'll do it, but I think we'll do it uh, when we become less powerful on the global stage and so that it makes yeah. more sense for us to do it because we're losing, you know, real measurable benefit from not doing it. Um, but I, I will say that I think yeah, it will be that's a sad actually day. what it comes down to. It will be a very sad day 
because, um, you know, how are we going to know how far it is from Los Angeles to New York? You know, we won't even be able to calculate that anymore. Distance will just be a thing that we have to estimate using, um, you know, like, oh, it's about 400,000 human heads between Los Angeles and New York. <laughs> That'll be the only way that we'll have of measuring distance is just the approximate width of the adult human head. I want to know how close you actually were to the, the, the real distance. 400,000 human heads. Is that way above, way too much or way too few or roughly correct? I, I'm going to do that math. Uh, <sighs> well, Hank, first off, it depends if you're talking about the width or the length of a human head because they aren't perfectly circular. <laughs> so um, I'm sure someone is going to figure that out for me, but I'm going to guess that I nailed it um, based on everything I know about myself. Hank, it's time for the news from uh, Mars, a cold, dead rock uh, further from the Earth than the sun that has no atmosphere to speak of. Um, and also... The news from AFC Wimbledon, the most exciting fan-owned football club in the world and arguably the greatest institution that human beings have ever come together to produce. What's the news from Mars this week? Well, and the news from... I'm sorry, I was doing math. I mean, Hank, I got it exactly right. It's not hard. Just trust me. I know the width of a human head. Sorry, I'm still doing math. Just a second. Uh, you are off by a lot. Incorrect. You've measured the human head poorly. <laughs> but it, it's amazing. You you would think that four hundred thousand human heads laid uh, laid side by side in in any uh, orientation would be a long way, but it's actually uh, in on the order of uh, you know about a hundred to two hundred miles. No way. Okay, let's let's move on to the news uh, from from Mars, John. Is that, is that all right with you? Yes, please. Let's. Okay. Uh, this. Uh, week, NASA tested one of the, oh, not one of the, the most powerful rocket engine ever developed, one of the most efficient rocket engines ever developed as well, uh, which will be used on the space launch system, which will propel uh, American astronauts once again into space as we move beyond the era where we are piggybacking uh, on our on the rockets of our Russian friends. And uh, the, uh, the, 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 Engines are uh, meant for single use. They are a, they are crazy. Uh, like they're they're basically built to uh, work. You know, they're, they're single use engines. So you light them off, and they rocket. Uh, that was not meant to be a pun. They rock it so hard that they basically, you know, are pretty close to the danger zone in terms of engineering and failure. Uh, but that allows them to be very efficient by having so much thrust. Uh, they have a very good thrust to weight, weight ratio. These are the RS-25 engines. Um, and we uh, we just did sort of a final test. That NASA did a final test where they, they ran one of these engines on the ground and not attached to a actual space vehicle. And, uh, and it went very well. And these will be the engines if we ever take humans to Mars. They will likely be the engines that do it. I'd like to slightly adjust my estimate for the number of human heads uh, between <laughs> Los Angeles and New York um, from 400,000 to 40 million. 
Um, because I think that 400,000 is about uh, 30 miles or 35 miles, but I think 40 million is darn near perfect. Uh, it's just a quick 40 million head plane ride from Los Angeles to New York City. I'm sorry, what was the news from Mars? <laughs> You guys built a rocket. It's super fast. It's a really great rocket. It's like the, it's the it's the 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 Ferrari of rocket engines, John. It's going to it's going to get us to Mars way faster and it's going to make really loud noises and a lot of fire. That's really exciting, Hank. Congratulations on your new rocket. Hey, AFC Wimbledon won their first game of the season. They came from 1-0 down against Crawley Town and won the game 2-1. to The first goal of the season for AFC Wimbledon was scored, of course, by the beast, Adebayo Akinfenwa, uh, the, the player I love above all others, at least among uh, current, current players in England. Uh, he's the biggest strongest, toughest uh, English football player, and uh, he's got DFTBA on his shorts. Um, Both of the uh, first two home games, unfortunately, have resulted in losses. So uh, from three games, AFC Wimbledon has uh, just three points. That's not not enough. We we need to to start doing better soon. Um, But uh, the John Green stand has sold out in each of the first two games, so that's something. Um, But yeah, won a game, uh, two to one. You know what they say, Hank, one nil down to two, one up. That's the way we're going to get promoted to League One. <laughs> um, so it's very exciting. Uh, I, uh, I'm, I am hopeful about the season, but, but of, of course a little nervous about our start here, just uh, three points from the first three games. Uh, and that's the news uh, from AFC Wimbledon. What a, what a wonderful time in your history, John. I'm excited for you. That's nice. You did a good job of faking it. I do my best because... What you feel is completely valid. Mm. I feel the same way about what you feel, but just less so. (laughs) Oh, John. Okay, Hank, so what did we learn today? We learned that you should probably wear shoes when you're climbing a tree. And we learned that apparently uh, grandmothers love Minions, the fifth most popular language spoken in the world today. We also learned that John would rather learn English than a language that would allow him to talk to hundreds of millions of people. I'm just trying to become a better writer, Hank. And, of course, we learned, thanks to Ellie, that there may or may not be a multiverse. Uh, But regardless, the multiverse doesn't care if we believe in it. And in one of those universes, John, in one of those universes, AFC Wimbledon, just one the World Cup. <laughs> nope, nope. Actually, they, they didn't uh, in none of those universes because AFC Wimbledon could never possibly compete in the World Cup because they are not an independent nation. Um, but in one of those universes... In one of those universes, they are. They are an independent nation. Just that little town. It's like the Vatican inside of England. And then they win the World Cup. <laughs> that was great. And I want to thank everybody for... For listening to this episode of Dear Hank and John. Also, thanks for submitting your questions, uh, which you can continue to do at hankandjohn at gmail.com. We'll endeavor to answer as many as possible in future podcasts. Our theme music is from Gunnarola. This podcast is edited by Nicholas Jenkins. Uh, we are John and Hank Green. And as they say in our hometown, don't, don't forget, forget to, to be, be awesome. awesome.